We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arsenal pay tribute to the legacy fans by ensuring they're the only ones who can watch the match. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can find me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. It was an interesting day for those of us who are not legacy fans. The online fans, you may call us. Although, I, I do want to point out that in October, I will be at the ground. Does that make me a legacy fan? Or do I, do I get a legacy fan card? That day? You know what? We'll solve that later. Point is... There was no way to watch the game, and if you were trying, what you do know is that there were the heroes among us at the ground, uh, totally unafraid to lose their clout, unafraid to lose the respect of their fellow match-going fan, because they had the internet fan in mind, pointing their phones at the stadium, streaming the game uh, at great peril to their Twitter accounts, to their season tickets and whatnot, but yeah, so that was it. Some shaky, grainy... uh, dare I say poorly filmed, and I apologize to the heroes who filmed it, but let's just say it. It is what it is. Uh, Views of the game followed by audio commentary on Arsenal Player, if you chose that. Not even a lot of written reports to follow along with. So an interesting time where an actual competitive game of Arsenal football was not available to be watched by the majority of Arsenal fans. But we are a very well-connected podcast, and I think you know that we have an Arsenal fan among us in our group that was there, that can tell you how the game went. And you know what? You can't disagree with his opinion because you don't know if he's right or not. Well, unless you were there too, let's introduce him now. His name is Tim. You can find him on Twitter. Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo! Look, Clive's a celebrity. We all know that. So now he's doing these advertisements for local businesses to support them in, in uh, combination with Arsenal, the actual football club itself, promoting these local businesses, try to help, help them stay on their feet, get back on their feet following the, the pandemic. And uh, so kudos to Clive. He's not missing today because he's too big for the pod. Uh, I dare not comment on speculation. If I speak, I'm in big trouble. He will be on a Patreon pod tomorrow to preview the Derby. Uh, if if you want to hear me singing John Lennon's Imagine, except uh, with lyrics related to the inability to watch the match, that was the opener to my solo reaction pod yesterday, and thanks to the patrons who suffered through that. But today, we'll talk a bit about the Wimbledon match, if we learned anything uh, from Tim telling us about it, and then uh, we will look ahead to the Derby. So that's what's on tap today, and we'll start with you, Tim. Uh I'm very excited to hear about this game because, 
I had a lot of opinions about it despite not seeing it. Now I can I can see if those opinions were right or not. From what little you tweeted, I get the sense that it was much of a muchness, as they say. Mm-hmm. 3-0 to the Arsenal, on to Leeds uh, at home, I believe, in the next round. But for a large stretch of this game, uh, I get the sense that it was just sort of a game that happened, and that's that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, essentially, and and I think that I I, I reviewed it a little bit because to be honest, those of you who didn't see it, you didn't miss an awful lot. Not a lot happened, and and I think, but having reviewed it, I think there are probably a few things that happened that made a large portion of the game feel quite disappointing. First of all, when you go one nil up at home to a League One side relatively early on, you kind of think, ah, here we go, we could be in business here. But then Arsenal didn't really create, I don't think, another... Well, they created another, a couple of openings, but really, really didn't create very much after that. And the game really, really drifted. And it drifted until, essentially, Smith, Rowe and Saka came on towards the end. And and so there were some... Yeah, it was, it was kind of... It was very Arteta. Like, everyone was standing roughly where they should be standing. We were quite organised. We didn't really look under great threat from Wimbledon but we weren't really creating anything there, there wasn't any fantasy in the play but I, and and I was I guess a little bit disappointed about that at the time hence my pithy kind of half-time tweet to you about mm. um, well actually borrowing a line from Jack Lang which which I think is a really really great line about Arteta's Arsenal being like a student that's uh, that studied to pass an exam but doesn't actually know how to apply the knowledge outside of that exam but having kind of rethought it afterwards, I did kind of think it was quite explicable that that happened because when you look at the front three of Lacazette, Martinelli and Nketiah, that's the, there's not a lot of creativity in that front three. That's three strikers, really. And then the number 10 was Maitland-Niles, who, um, as I think we all know by now, is a lot of things, but probably not a number 10 <laughs> Um, and and so it probably stands to reason that w- that we weren't very creative. So Eddie Nketiah was playing on the left, which is obviously not really his preferred position. Martinelli was playing on the right, and I don't think that's his preferred p- position in the front three. And Martinelli, I mean, I think he should take this as a compliment because he was asked to adapt the most in that Nketiah was basically, I think, told just play as a second striker, do, do what like Aubameyang does when he plays on the left. Whereas Martinelli, I think, was given a job that maybe he was less comfortable with in terms of he was asked to be really wide and be a proper winger and take players on and things like that, which, you know, usually you think of Martinelli more as an inside forward, whereas here he was, you know, hugging the touchline, taking players on and things like that, which in one respect, not great for him. But in another respect, I think that says that Arteta thinks more of him than Nketiah. Maybe that he rated him to do a slightly uncomfortable job over and above um, the other two forwards. And and yeah, it, it, it was fairly disjointed really just because of, I think, the, the lack of creativity in the team, which I think is fine. I, I have absolutely no quibbles with um, the starting lineup at all. And generally speaking, I think when you're playing in the League Cup, at home to a League One team, pick a team that's going to win. Don't worry that much if like they're going to be amazing and play flowing football. Just win the game, get it done, play some players that probably need some minutes, rest some players that don't. And and actually, I think that was the story of the game. And once Saka and Smith-Rowe came on, it really kind of, the fluidity really kicked up a notch. Which is not surprising because those are the players that have been playing. I think the thing that's interesting about this game, right, is... When was Lacazette's last competitive football? When was Martinelli's? When was... I mean, Lacazette's, it 
honestly, it looked like about five years ago. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be unkind, but it kind of looked like it'd been on the meat. And, you know, you know, like Lacazette has those games sometimes where he looks like he's had a kebab, like yeah. in the tunnel just before, like, yeah, he looked like that. Like he was really, like, I think he had the sweats before the game started, to be honest. It's a shame because he had started the sort of preseason and what little, you know, action we've seen of him looking really sharp. And, you know, I I don't know how much we need Lacazette in terms of our long-term planning, but he is the only other sort of experienced striker in the club besides Aubameyang. You'd like to think yeah. that you could bring him in, but if he looked like that, then, you know, I, I, I said on the Instant Reaction Pod, he's a player that I think might have had a bit to gain from this game because I'm not yep. sure Aubameyang's been lighting the world on fire. Maybe he's someone who could have made an argument for himself, but... From the sounds of what you're saying, that definitely was not what happened. No, no, and and I guess again, I'm I'm maybe this is based on my expectation, but when I saw that front three um, in the starting lineup, I thought, okay, that that's a we all know that's a front three that doesn't really fit together, but it's the League Cup and it will do for tonight. But I was expect, I was thinking, ah, okay, we've got two like very strikery wingers. This is perhaps when we're going to see that, you know, that Liverpool thing, that kind of Lacazette. Nine and a half Lacazette. Yeah, yeah. coming away and Martinelli and, and Nketiah running in behind. And that that just didn't really materialise. And mm. yeah, I think Lacazette looked, I mean, to be kind to him, he didn't really look sharp. And considering he's not really played this season, you can maybe explain that away. If you had to pick one of these sort of starters, really at any position, who, you know, I'm not going to say in a home win over Wimbledon made a case to start the Derby or anything. I'm not going to go that far. But did anyone catch the eye enough to say that's someone who's probably going to be, if not in a starting lineup soon, the first the first guy off the bench? I mean, would Martinelli have been the guy? Was anyone the guy? I, I think Martinelli was pretty bright. Like I said, he was doing things I think he wasn't entirely comfortable with in terms of being like a quote-unquote proper winger. Um, I, I think most people who were at the game would tell you that Tavares was the one who caught the eye. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I have, and he did catch the eye, but I, I guess I just have like some reservations about it just because he, like, he's really, like, he's really, really active. Like, you know, when Colo Torre first came into the Arsenal team and hmm. he was like the Tasmanian devil, like Tavares is a bit like that. I'm not sure yet I've seen a lot of smart play from him. Yeah. Like sometimes he does quite... Do- like, do you remember that run he had at the end of the Burnley game? Like he beats three players and you think, yes, this is brilliant. It's the last minute. It's 1-0. And then he takes the shot players. from 25 yards. Yeah, <laughs> and then he tries to smash the shot and you're like, no, like what, like what are you doing? Like there was quite a lot of that where like he's really good at kind of being really positive, taking players on and things like that. But uh, yeah, his decision-making isn't always fantastic, I don't think. But he will always get, I think, well, at least, for now he will get like a stadium crowd on side because he tries to do stuff that you can see and it is actually quite exciting but sometimes I don't know I I have maybe I'm being too um you know stroking my chin too much but I'm kind Mm. of looking and thinking yeah but that wasn't really the right decision there but he 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 caught the eye definitely and and overall definitely had a good game yeah I mean it is he's like 20 though isn't he he's like he always seems the rawest to me of the bunch Definitely. And that's how he was described coming in, Paul, as, as yeah. you know, ha- physically having the tools and technically being a little raw. I, look, it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot to take away from this game, which is unsurprising given the, the opposition and the circumstance. 
But I think it is a reminder how little football outside of the Premier League is available to the players who don't play regularly in the Premier League. And so, Paul, I want to talk to you about a few of the selections and the curiosity of those selections. I think the interesting story, really the story of the game leading up to it, is Thomas Party starting. Mm-hmm. And then the subsequent report that Thomas Party wanted to start. Mm-hmm. Now, I took a position on this in the Instant Reaction pod that I, the more I think about it, I think I believe it. <laughs> Go figure. Um, which is that I think this is a great sign for Thomas Party. I think there are a lot of experienced senior pros on big money who on a midweek game against Wimbledon in the League Cup will be like, well, that's my night off. I don't even have to be at the ground. I'm going to stay home and you know do whatever I do in my life. And for one of our highest paid players in his prime, really one of our stars, to say, you know what? I've been short of match fitness. I've been leggy at the end of matches. I got injured a lot last season. I need game time in this game. I'm going to go lobby the manager to get me in this game. I think that is a really good sign of commitment, a good sign of professionalism to want to be involved in a game you absolutely could have had the night complete. I have no doubt that Arteta would have let him take this night completely off. So I think that's a good sign for him. And while I'm normally the kind of worry about him getting injured, which I did, of course, we know now with periodization and the way fitness works that these players... It's it's different that actually not playing can can wind up harming their fitness as much as playing. So, do you yeah. do you agree at all with my position that it's a really encouraging sign about his professionalism to to push to play to to get his fitness up in a game where he almost certainly could have had the night off? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I didn't, I never even considered the professionalism side of it. I just considered the fitness side of it. Like, I assume if you're a professional footballer, you love playing football. Like, did you oh, see? No, I don't know about that. I can show you a few players who don't fit that mold. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's a few, but like most people, like if you, if you put me in a game right now acro- across the way in a field with five uh, strangers I don't know playing against me and four with me, I, I, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It's a nothing game. By about ten minutes into it, I really want to win. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I it's. Like, how do you, like, that's just what a game, like, did you see Bruno Fernandes mm. stealing that, uh, the, you know, it's the Carabao Cup. It's 90-something minutes in it, and the referee's doing one of those drop balls for West Ham because they're due the ball back. And that little feckin' weasel, Bruno Fernandes, decides the only way they're going to get leveled is if he basically cheats and he steals in, nicks this drop ball that was just for the West Ham United player, dribbles past the keeper, and like everybody's just like, you dick, right? <laughs> now, that's the kind of professionalism we should be lauding, not Thomas Party wanting to play a game for his fit. No, I'm joking, yeah. right? These guys, most of them, like playing football. And what else would you do? It's that or practice. So I think uh, sometimes you can get big for your britches, though, where you look yeah. at a competition. I mean, look at a competition and, and a, an opponent as well. That's you know that's where the kids play. I don't play in that. I I stay home yeah. on those days. You, you know what I mean? And especially with yeah. the derby coming up. No, look, you have a you have a good point. It wasn't where my mind went at the time, which is if I'm Thomas Party and I'm playing in the North London derby, um, I'd like to be a lot fitter than I was the previous weekend, or I'm yeah. probably not going to enjoy that game. And from a fitness standpoint, if you can get to 100% match fitness, you're a lot more protected than if you're playing at 90% in the North London Derby and you're stretching and you're diving into tackles and you got Hoiberg and Ndombele's giant arse smacking against you, as opposed to Wimbledon for, uh, did he play the full game? 
hopefully. Um, no, no, he played 58 minutes. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I think, he was, I think he was planned for exactly an hour almost. It, it really had yeah. that feeling yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah he definitely. came off like the yeah. first stoppage around an hour. Yeah. So it's obviously a fitness exercise. But anyway, totally. it's another 60 minutes in the bank. And if I'm him, him, I'm probably feeling a lot more comfortable than coming off jaded as he was uh, last weekend and then going into a very hectic North London derby where you might have to play 90 minutes or even if you play 70, it's going to be intense. Uh, like you feel unprotected, unprepared. And the people losing their shit over it when he was in the selection, I don't get it. Like the... Like, I'm not I think you do to- get it. Look, look, be a little bit considerate of that viewpoint, right? Like, he's a guy who we've lost playing him at times when he shouldn't have played before, rushing him back. He's a guy who's had fitness issues. Like, you can understand someone being nervous about one of your most important yeah. players playing a pretty meaningless fixture, meaningless in the sense that you don't need a minute um, yeah, sure. ahead of the derby. You can understand yeah. where that's coming from. Yeah, I've considered it. I don't get it. Really? Um, <laughs> doesn't everybody know that if you're not fully fit, you're probably going to get more easily injured and like isn't the perfect game to play Wimbledon in the Carabao Cup for 60 minutes where you're not like your next game is the North London Derby is that where you want to generate the fitness to be 100% match fit fitness is what protects you against injury playing protects you against injury not protecting yourself not playing I, being wrapped in cotton I, I want to be clear i agree with you on this particular point I, but like for example if Aubameyang had started this game i would have been like that's crazy right I, I think i think there are games that you rotate players out of and you don't risk them if they're in fine form and fitness and then there are players who are still working their way back to fitness i mean party has played very little football so it made more sense to me i, yeah. I guess all i'm trying to say is like i don't think it is insane to have the opinion of like gosh, I'd like us to not risk any of our key first-team players in this game. Like, I don't think that that is an outrageous opinion. I think in this case with Party, it was certainly sensible given that the player himself was saying, I need the fitness. But, uh, Paul, I mean, I, I think in the, I just for think the sake we need of... to redefine the idea of protecting a player because getting a guy to 100% match fitness... I see. Yeah, that protects him is most of protection. all. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. No, totally totally fair. I mean, Tim, you don't have to weigh in on this if you want, but do you, do you have any opinion one way or the other of of the sort of risk-reward of, of putting important players into games like this ahead of the derby? No, I, I, I think it... Well, it's... Look, the manager and the player know if it's the right call, essentially. Yeah. And, and look, ultimately, I think resting players is something fans worry about a lot but that players and coaches don't worry about that it's much. Also, look, there's symmetry, right? Like he got rushed back for the Derby last season and we lost him again and it may have cost us a European place or more, right? So there's there's just people who have been you know been burned by this with this player in the past. And so I think it's yeah, understandable yeah. the nervousness. But for me... Although rephrased, he was played in the North London Derby last year when he wasn't fit. Right, so, if only he had had a midweek game to get fit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I, we. I think we on this podcast right now are all in lockstep in terms of our opinion of it. I think I'm just a little more understanding of the people that were apprehensive about it as someone who tends to be apprehensive about things myself. Um, Tim, the, the interesting thing though with selection is just it makes you realize how little football there is and how hard it's going to be to sort of keep players happy but also give players a chance to impress and get into the team. And, you know, I, I have to say for someone like Fuller and Balogun and, and Eddie and Kedia, that's an interesting situation because Enkedia has the seniority He's not done anything wrong per se, right, to deserve being frozen out, but he doesn't really have a future at the club as far as we know, and Balogun might. And so I think it's interesting that he chose Enkedia over Balogun, and to be said, it has to be said, Enkedia had a 
brilliant finish for his goal. Absolutely mm. sensational. But like, what's your take on Arteta's decision to go with like an Enkedia over Balogun and the way some of these players are going to find a path to minutes in a season that doesn't offer a lot? Yeah, I mean, and there's players like even Chambers didn't get to play. Yeah, started the season as first choice. Now he's he's nowhere near it. And yeah, who knows when he'll play again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. On on this, so I, I'd start again, not knowing like the absolute situation of the two players in training. And I know Arteta said afterwards that Inketia trains. You know, no one trains harder than Inketia keeps his head down, and that's why um, we saw. And, and he was decent. He did have a decent game. Uh, overall, not just the goal, and so he said. You know, he's not played a lot, but you saw that he he wasn't uh, unlike other players on our front line. He he didn't look to be lacking sharpness or anything like that. And and Arteta said, you know, that's because of the way he trains and things like that. And we know that Arteta puts a lot of emphasis on that. That if you train well, you should be rewarded and things like that. Um, I I guess really looking at it from like a thousand foot view I, I didn't really agree with the decision um, myself because the thing is if you if you don't make this team selection in these games because of like like I'm sure that Inketi is at a higher level um, than Balogun at the moment both in you know in terms of experience sharpness possibly even fitness because um, Balogun you know, he came on and he did look a little bit all over the place. So like, I kind of get it. But at the same time, when you make your selection in a game like this, you're not selecting the best players. <laughs> Otherwise, no, Aubameyang would have been starting if you're going to just pick like um, an Erdegaard and players like that. Like, they're, yeah, they're all right, like Smith Rowe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you're picking the players at the highest level, then that's kind of what you're doing. So on, on the face of it, I kind of think, well, maybe you should have played Balogun, um, even if he's not at the level, then, you know, we were just talking about party, right? What better, like, how else do you get match fitness other than by playing in a match? And it's probably the same for Balogun. It's like, well, how else does he get that sharpness back? Does he get it in the under-23s anymore? Um, so, uh, but at the same time, trying to look at it from, I guess, Arteta's point of view, I think the point that he made very strongly about how well Nketiah trained is probably behind it. And the fact that um, he was looking, basically he was looking to play a player out of position as well, because Balogun's he has played as wide forward, but he's not really a wide forward. And I think in those scenarios, you probably do default to experience a little bit if you're going to ask someone to do something a little bit unfamiliar. So maybe... Balogun played uh, wide forward for the under-23s in the game against Chelsea, but he only got about 30 minutes or something before there was a red card and they pulled him off instead. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they're, they're probably looking at that and thinking, well, if he can play there. But I guess Arteta reasoned that Balogun playing in an unfamiliar position when he's already, you know, lacking a bit of sharpness or whatever, like you say, Paul, got taken out of that under-23 games uh, uh, game early. You know, maybe he just thought, well, wh- what good would 60 minutes of Balogun kind of floundering do for him um and he probably just thought look i'm asking quite a lot of my forwards and quite a lot of my players like maitland niles and martin i'm asking them to do unfamiliar things and so maybe i would just rather go with the slightly older slightly more experienced player in that scenario when i know we're not we're maybe not going to create as much we're not going to be as free-flowing um so i i guess i get it in that respect but yeah yeah there there is a big part of me that just thinks pick Balogun and, and let him kind of come up to the level a bit. Well, I'd, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for the conversations with trying to get Balogun to re-sign 
his new deal, right? Like surely they must have laid out a plan for him. Here's when, you know, what our path to getting you into the first team is. Here's where you're going to play. Here's the playing time we see. You know, you're ahead of this guy. You're behind that guy. This is the timetable. And maybe the timetable was this year is going to be another U23 year, but then Oba and Locker are going to go and you're going to be a big part of the subsequent year. I mean, I don't know. I'm, that's why I'm saying I would have loved to have heard it because, I mean, other than the odd 10 minutes at the end of a Premier League game, and maybe, maybe an FA Cup tie if we draw a lower, you know, a team down the, down the pyramid, he's not starting another game this season. Like, it's very, very, very hard to see where that is. And, and I'll ask you, Tim, just real quick, stay with you for a second. How much of the team selection do you think is built on the fact that Arteta has a very, very fragile renaissance coming on here? He's beaten Norwich, barely. He's beaten Burnley, barely. He's got the Derby at the weekend. It's a renaissance of sorts, but it's a fragile one. And an accident at home to Wimbledon is beyond consideration. And mm-hmm. I don't think he trusts his team so much to say he knows full stop. I, you know, I think if if this team is sitting in second right now, having a great start to the season, maybe Patino starts in this game and Balogun starts this mm-hmm. game. But I think the average age of this team might have been older than the one that started against Burnley. He he did rotate, Tim, but he rotated to a side that I think he felt confident could get the job done. So do you think that maybe there would have been starts for a Balogun or, or even a Patino potentially or, or playing time for Patino had had we not had this sort of fragile renaissance going on ahead of the Derby? Yeah, that may be a part of it. I I think the main real takeaway there is it's the Derby at the weekend. So when we were about to play Man City, um, he didn't really worry about resting players. And I bet in the next round against Leeds, I bet we go strong again because we haven't got European football. There isn't as much need to rest players. So I, I don't think that the Carabao Cup in general will be much of a competition where we're seeing you know the young players or, or even that much of the fringe players. I, I might think as well if, try to win it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think if we're playing like Newcastle at home this weekend, I think this team would have been stronger. I think it's mm. only because it's Spurs and everyone knows the importance of that, not just because of the derby angle, but we know that we're probably going to be pretty close together in the league and that these points are going to be decisive. So I really do think it's just where it fell. I think um, nearly any other game, you know, if you're not resting players before Man City away in the previous round, and I appreciate it was closer to the beginning of the season and we hadn't won yet and there were a few other things at play, but like I really think Spurs are one of the only opponents you'd have seen any, like not any sort, but, but like wholesale changes. And I'm not, to be fair, I haven't, I can't remember um, exactly. I think we're between like Aston Villa at home and maybe Leicester away um, for the next round for Leeds. So I, I think we've got Leicester away after. Mm. I, I still think we'll go pretty strong against Leeds. I, I think it's just purely the derby factor. So actually, I don't think this is going to be a competition for the kids anyway this year. Well, and and even like the likes of Cedric and, and, and co were probably quite lucky to get a game here. Well, that's interesting because if that is the case, then you really are in a situation where like Martinelli and Cedric and Marie and Holding and Chambers and I mean, Tavares, whatever, fine. But, you know, like where where are the games coming from? And some of these players are pretty important and without any real game time. I know there are people that say, well, that's what training's for and they've got practice and they can work hard in practice. I don't know that you'd say that's the same thing. No. That, that yeah. is going to be a problem for Arteta. It, it just is. Yeah, it, it's it, the benefit of not having European football is you should be rested and fit as hell going into your games on, on the weekend. But 
the downside when you have a squad our size with you know some of the caliber of players in waiting is just keeping everybody happy, keeping the, the side ticking along. You know, Paul, there's not a lot that happened on the pitch that I think matters for the future, but there's one little thing that I, I took away from this. I'm curious to get your take on it, and that's Smith Rowe. He gets a goal in this game. I think we would all agree that if we're going to be a good team this season, more players are going to have to find ways to score goals. So you got Aubameyang up front, and Pepe maybe can do it, but Saka, Smithrow, Odegaard, there's going to have to be goals that come from that group. And the one that I would actually put my money on maybe doing it is Smithrow. You look at the last few games, he's arrived in the box, he's had shots from good prime locations. Aubameyang put him in a great position to take a shot against Burnley that he hit right at the keeper. He had the one where he was coming across the box, I think against Norwich, and he put it just wide. may have been Burnley as well, I can't remember. Um, Burnley, I think, the one you shot just over. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yep. that was and then he had the one straight at the keeper from the left channel after Aubameyang put him in close range. Yeah. So he's getting into those positions. Mm-hmm. He's getting into the box. He's getting into shooting locations, and he's taking those shots. And we know, thanks to the help from Data a little bit and just from updating our, our ideas about football, that it's not just scoring the goals that matter, but the players that get into those positions, that take those mm-hmm. shots in prime locations, those tend to be the ones that come good when it comes to goal scoring. Well, in this game, he scores from a very prime location. I mean, close in, deep inside the box. It's he smashes it home. It's sort of a, you know, tap a in merchant. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, but it's one thing when it's your striker tapping. It's another thing when it's your attacking midfielder. And I think the fact that he hits the back of the net there, that he gets that chance to score a goal, but that he's arriving in those locations, that for me is a harbinger of better things to come. So I'm curious if you think that that particular takeaway, that this player is getting into prime locations in the box to take shots and in this case score a goal may mean that he's on the verge of of giving us a little more than we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I occasionally make a comparison to Ramsey, and one of the aspects of Ramsey's game in particular that we all miss, and I see in Smith-Rowe, is his propensity to make a beeline into the box and arrive at a key moment. And I love that this was a tap-in. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a screamer from 30 yards out. Uh, but I also love tap-ins because that's location, 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 and he's got himself right on the edge of the six-yard box, and he just needs to knock it in. Um, And all the usual caveats in terms of opponent or whatever, but if he makes those runs, and he has in the past, and he has last season, if he keeps making those runs to be that midfielder uh, to make the run into the box and deep into the box, you know, there are other people who visit the box, but they... I don't get it. I don't get as a footballer, as a midfielder, why would you not run to the fucking six-yard box? You're going to get three, four, five goals. You don't even have to be good, right? Maitland-Niles, do what Willock does. Do what Smith-Rowe does. Run into the fucking box and get into the six-yard box and don't think that's Aubameyang's um, uh, province get into the I I don't get it if you hang if you get in there and you hang around there you get three four five goals a season yeah I don't know is it just instinct is it just that some players you know they get a nosebleed when they get that high up the pitch they're worried what's going on behind them they They, think something else is more important than that they get drawn to the ball they think if I sit in this pocket I'll be used you know and like fuck that shit 
run to the six yard box, especially if you're not very good, right? Mm. Then, then definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to be a little harsh on Joe Willock, but you know he has some issues with uh, quality of ball or whatever. But what he got very smart to do was getting into the box, like if and kicking the ball into the net. Yeah, yeah. If you're a bad Joe Willock, as opposed to Joe Willock, get into the box run towards the six-yard box, and Smith Rowe has consistently done that. He does other good things and other good finishing, but uh, he has that. You call it an instinct, but as you say, it's almost the ability. It's like a shielding on a cable for electromagnetic forces, right? It's almost the the ability to resist all other impulses uh, when you're running into the box to not get distracted, not get pulled to this, not to stop, not that to... That was exactly kind of- what I was thinking. So thank you for, for oh, yeah. saying it because okay. otherwise I would have had to. Um, well, look, I, I don't I don't think there's anything more that needs to be said about this game. I think we can talk about the Derby now. Uh, that That's really what matters. So let's, let's talk about the Derby Day Reckoning coming up um, and one of the big decisions facing the manager. Um, but I think yesterday was a day where the internet let us down. Quite clearly, the internet let us down because there were no streams of the game. But I think almost all of us went to websites we should not have visited in the hope of finding a stream. And when those ads are popping up or those multiple windows are popping up all over your screen, and you're like, oh gosh, which one of these is going to be, which one of these is going to be a tracking this or a cookie that or a, a virus this? Yeah, that's a day for a VPN, my friends. So let me tell you about IP Vanish. What is IP Vanish, you ask? Great question. It's a virtual private network, a VPN for short. A VPN is an important tool that helps you safely browse the internet. And as someone who went to all kinds of dodgy websites looking for a stream, I can tell you that my VPN was on. You can use a VPN on your computers, tablets, phones, even things like a fire stick when you're streaming media. When you use a VPN, all your data is encrypted. What you're reading, what you're watching, what you're searching, what you're looking at, whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing, uh, it's it's protected. And oh, by the way, if something is geo-locked, like, you know, oh, you can't watch this BBC video because you're over here. You can't watch this NBC video because you're over there. You can bounce yourself to another location. And uh, all of a sudden, that website thinks you're in that location. It's very handy. For listeners of this show, this Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, let's just call it the Arsenal Vision podcast, IP Vanish is offering an incredible 65% off their annual plan. Now, I love IP Vanish. And I think they are as good as it gets at protecting you on the internet. I think that their math sucks. And I want to ask you, listeners, to let me know if this is true. And again, love IP Vanish. You should sign up. They're saying that it is 65% off their annual plan, which is equal to six months free. Now, six months is half a year. So it has to be 50% off the annual plan, isn't it? I guess if there's a monthly cost versus an annual cost, well, you know what? I'll check back on that before I ridicule the, the math skills of our sponsor. IP Vanish is super easy to use. You turn it on with the click of a button. It runs seamlessly in the background, helping protect you while you're browsing the web. And if you run into trouble, 24-7 support by email, chat, and phone. Go to IPVanish.com, promo code VISION. IPVanish.com forward slash vision. Do that instead. Forward slash vision. IPVanish.com forward slash vision. Claim your 65% savings or 50% savings. We'll get to the bottom of that. Their annual plan is just $44.99 for the first year with our exclusive discount. That's like $4 a month, I want to say, for US dollars. And the US dollar, what's that even worth? Nothing. This is the time to sign up with our discount and get their current promotion. You can get a VPN for 65% off, 4.7 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot with more than 6,000 reviews. So you know you can trust it. IPVanish.com forward slash vision. Unless you think we're going to talk about the Darby, you're wrong because we're going to talk about Mobile phone service, Mint Mobile. You know all about it. Don't have to tell you too much. 15 bucks a month 
on the nation's best high-speed data and text network, largest 5G network, 100% satisfaction. You got a seven-day money-back guarantee to try it. Here's the thing with Mint Mobile. They sent me a, a SIM card. I plugged the SIM card into my phone. My phone worked just the same way as it does with my $180 a month phone service, only this was $15 phone service. Like, that's it. There's no stores, no retail stores. There's special sauce. They get rid of all that, save you the money. And it's, I mean, here's the thing, right? They use the same network. They're on the same, like, nationwide top 5G text, high-speed data network. Now, you might say, I don't know, you know, 15 bucks does sound great, but I, I don't, you know, cell phone service is important. I hear you. You have seven days, money back guarantee. Drive around, use it where you want, see if it works. Because if it works, if you have a teenager that needs a phone, if you have a young person that needs a phone for emergencies, if you need a burner phone, and I mean, you know, you know, you need a burner phone. If, you, if you're the kind of person that needs a burner phone, you know it. Go to mintmobile.com slash vision, mintmobile.com slash vision. You get a free, uh, um, plan shipped to your door. It's shipped to your door for free for just 15 bucks a month with seven days money back guarantee. So try it. Mintmobile.com slash vision. Tim, is that enough of that? Oh, yes. You raised your hand. You were so eager. There's a little <laughs> raise your hand symbol that you can do on our on our little recording thing. And he raised his hand to tell me that was enough of that. Okay, that is enough of that. And Tim, I, I would say that like, th- there are topics that when you bring them up, people roll their eyes and they're like, oh, we're going to talk about this again. So I'm sorry, roll your eyes all you want. There is one topic going into the Derby that absolutely has to be discussed. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. Tim, Granite Shacket is eligible for selection. <laughs> I mean, like Thanos himself, he is inevitable. Snaps his fingers, he's back in the lineup. Or does he? I have this weird feeling that we've seen a different type of, of qualities, of skill sets, of, of player attributes in midfield over these last few weeks that maybe will have piqued Arteta's interest as another way to play. I watch Spurs. I've watched a lot of Spurs this season, much to my displeasure. They are awful. Well, much, much to my pleasure, they're awful. Their defense is awful. They don't play out of the back well. If you get in their face, they'll give it away. They are like, I think, bottom of the league for expected goals created. This is a team you can have a go at. On the edges, they don't defend well in one-on-ones. I just think there's a lot of opportunity here. I'm really, really curious what's going to happen with Granite Jacket. Do you want to give me a couple minutes of your thoughts of what should and what might happen now that Granite Jacket is back and eligible for selection? Yeah, sure. So what I think will happen, I'm I'm about 85% sure he will start alongside mm-hmm. Thomas Partey. Um, and then I think, um, yeah, you'll have probably Erdegaard ahead of Xhaka and Partey. Maybe Smith-Rowe will start in one of the wide positions ahead of ahead of Pepe, potentially. Um, not sure I'd put a lot of money on that, though, because Pepe wasn't involved. So I, I do think he'll come back in, yes. Like I said, I'm 85% sure, because I was about the same. I was about 85% sure that Leno would start against Norwich um, and, that, and that Tommy Asu wouldn't. So, you know, there, there is precedent for Arteta to do, to do some slightly unexpected things, like, like starting Thomas Party against Wimbledon. Um, so I think that's what will happen. I would not, put it this way, I wouldn't complain whatsoever if we started with Party Smith-Rowe, and Erdegaard. Um, I, I think there's been enough there that that looks pretty interesting. I do think that Tottenham's midfield has looked really, really dysfunctional so far mm-hmm. this season. They've um, they've got this kind of issue where they're either swapping between, like they against Palace. I think they played Harry Winks and Oliver Skip next to Hoiberg, which is just really, really unimaginative. No creativity whatsoever. I, I think the thing is 
they kind of need Ndombele in there to bring a little bit of fantasy and imagination to that midfield, but I don't think they trust him. And um, and and that's that's their kind of issue in midfield. They kind of maybe a bit like us with Xhaka, but in a different way. They kind of can't live with him, but can't live without him. They need him because they don't have like another player in that midfield at the moment who you know really gets things going. But like Ndombele, I think the view is anyway from probably from his coach that he he might he might make you a goal but he might cost you a goal as well and so how do you reconcile that so actually i think spurs have got a slightly similar conundrum in their midfield in terms of like do we do the bold thing and play smithrow and Erdgaard and do they do the bold thing and start with ndombele or do both teams or one of the teams like keep that ace up their sleeve for later in the match. I, I tend to think Arsenal will keep it up their sleeve for later in the match. Um, but I wouldn't be at all surprised or unpleasantly surprised if it was if it was Party Smith Rowan Erdegaard. I, I guess what I think will really make the decision for Arteta is that Party still hasn't completed 90 minutes yet. And he might want to like reserve the right to take him off. And maybe he kind of thinks, look, it's a North London derby. I don't want to just ask him to hold um, at the moment. I I need, like, I I want someone else there for a bit of security. So I do think that's what he will do. Um, Mm. And again, again, to be honest, I wouldn't enormously complain about that. Like, I'm not absolutely adamant that we must start Smith-Rowe and Erdegaard um, together. But I, I think he will start Xhaka. But personally, I'd make my peace with either one. The last time Granit Xhaka played a football match was when he got sent off against Manchester City. And he had COVID, wasn't training with the group. By the time he was cleared to train with the group, he hasn't been able to play since then. I understand that this manager trusts this player, but he's got players playing well in midfield, a different way of setting up a midfield, a midfield with more mobility and athleticism that can step away from from an attack, uh, uh, from, from the marker, from a defender, that can carry the ball towards, you know, break lines by carrying the ball, not just firing it out to a fullback. And I don't want to pretend that Shaq is not a good player. Shaq is a, a good player. He's a limiting player, but he's a good player. But like, I, I just don't think that bringing a player back for the Derby, whose last action was getting sent off weeks ago and hasn't played and didn't even train that much prior to that, I just don't think that's a sound decision Yeah, given the, the quality of play he's gotten from the players who have come in in his stead. And I think, if you want to say, look, Party may not be able to stand the whole game, well, then he could bring in Shaka, I guess. But one of the things, Paul, that changes the, the calculus for me on Shaka is the way we play now. He was so good last season, for those who think he was good, because he was playing that role, dropping into the line of three in the first phase of buildup, right? Making that three. But now Tomiyasu does that. It's White, Tomiyasu, and Gabriel. And so we don't have that central midfielder who drops in. And I think that role suited him And I'm not sure we had another midfielder as suited to that role as he was. But I don't know that any of the current roles suit him as well as the other players who can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly think that Odegaard dropping in, you know, being able to to not necessarily be a true double pivot, but coming to help out. We saw his running against Burnley. He's just, he's got a tremendous engine. He works really hard off the ball. I don't think he has to make this choice, Paul. And I don't think Mm. that there is enough to worry about in midfield against Spurs and I don't think he needs Shaka dropping deep to, to distribute from the back. So it's not only that I think we have better options with different qualities. I think it's that the way we play now 
has obviated the the clear need to start with Shaka. I mean, is that mm. is that a fair assessment? No. Um, so, uh, like, the, at least I got it out there. <laughs> what I like about all that is, uh, I mean, I did agree all, with all of that. Really, um, it's exciting, right? Because we have ways. You said a way of playing. We actually have ways of playing right now, right? Uh, there's a few different ways we can play. I know you say Tommy Yasu comes in, changes the calculus, but he doesn't really. I mean, we played with Chambers there, and he tended to be the more conservative of the two fullbacks forming the three at the back, and Chaka did his thing um, so that sometimes he was in the back three or we had two at the back and then he was in the three in midfield. He could very much do the same thing, spinning the ball up to Tierney, uh, or if Saka's coming off the left uh, into the channel up to Saka. I mean, Tomiyasu arriving doesn't really change how we need to play. Uh, He may not get us... Uh, forward as as often as Chambers did, say, in the classic West Ham game we all reference. Uh, mm-hmm. But early on in that game, Chambers didn't either. You know, it was when we were in possession, when we were secure. So could go either way. I think, look, here's how I look at the NLD. I know we've decided that Spurs are shit and they have a terrible midfield and they don't trust Ndombele. But Nuno is going to look at the game against Chelsea and think, uh, plus, he's under tremendous pressure uh, given the result, the performances more than the results or the the points total, and the fact that they got absolutely reamed by Chelsea in the second half. But the first half, they were they pretty. You could say they matched Chelsea in the first half. Now maybe it was because Chelsea wasn't firing on all four cylinders, but it was also because they had Ndombele, Hoiberg, and Ali in the middle. And this being a, away from a home and a North London derby, I think they'll have that more. There's a very strong chance he'll he'll say, "All right, let's keep the half that worked against Chelsea and gave them a lot of trouble," um, and go with that midfield. And when you have that kind of a midfield, I don't know that you line up party who isn't fully fit plus Smith Rowe and Odegaard and say, we're going to come at you. So uh, uh, the weird thing is that you look at 60, getting 60 or 70 minutes from party. And what you probably want to do is start the game fairly solid. And then like, I'd love to bring on party after 25, 30 minutes and have him for the last 60, 70 minutes so that you could play solid for a while and then switch to the 4-3-3 with Odegaard and Saka when the time was right. But, like, to me, that's most likely to kick in around 60 or 70 minutes, depending on game state, depending on whether we need a game or a goal or we need to up our play and our dynamism. I'd love to switch to the, and we've seen this, this happened in one or two games um, where we switched to that more attacking midfield uh, a little later in the game. I know we started with that in the last game um, uh, and maybe went a little more conservative as it went on. But I could I could see the rationale where you want to switch to that a little later on, but teams never do that. You don't you don't bring on a guy, plan to bring on Thomas Party at, at 30 minutes so you can have him around for the rest of the game and switch between those two formations. But I think that's actually the more likely plan that we'll have a more, cons- if you want to call it more, con- more conservative, more like the the two pivots with Chak and Party at the start of this game because it's a North London derby. Um, and they are more likely to have 
a meaty midfield start this game, I think. And uh, it'll be a good old-fashioned slug it out. Um, and we may find ourselves with six, with 30 minutes to go wanting to be more aggressive, but Thomas Partey's had his 60 or 70 minutes of of game time. And now who do you sit as your uh, lone man at the bottom of the, the midfield V when you want to switch to Odegaard and Saka? So it's, it's a tough challenge for the manager to work out if he agrees with my my uh, my narrative, my arc for this game, how he's going to set up to to go four three three when he needs to attack in the last thirty minutes, or to push the game on, or to go from zero zero one one to chase a goal. Um, I do think, though, it's likely to be Granitschak and and Party in the midfield to start this game and I don't think we should assume like Spurs have been pretty bad there's no denying that they've got almost no shots off I think Harry Kane's had three or four shots for the season so far but it'll be a derby he'll only need a couple of shots to hurt us if if we're not set up right well you have to factor in his penalty one from a deli alley dive penalty yeah um and, and like it's just going to be different because it's the North London Derby, and I also think that if if Nuno plays the Chelsea first half midfield with of Ndombele, Hoiberg, and Ali, it's a different calculation. It doesn't mean they'll be great, but it'll stop them being a, an easy opponent. It's just that, like none of them can pass, and. They're all well, and can, oh, no, no, I di- absolutely disagree with that. Hoiberg and Ndombele can pass. I'm sorry. Mm, yeah, all right. I mean, I, none of them. Well, they yeah. don't excite apart from Ndombele, but yeah, mm. I guess I'm just I'm I'm jaded by the fact that watching Ndombele this season, he just hasn't been very good. Yeah, like honestly, and like, I don't, they haven't been good. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean that's what it is. It, yeah. it, I'm I'm there's a lot of recency bias here. I confess, like the, the players that you'd think maybe we're good for them, have not been good. So I, I will yeah. confess that I'm probably leaning a little too much into recency bias. I, Tim, for me, it's just that, like, I'm not sure what role each player has if you bring Shaka back. It feels like a step backwards in terms of tactics and the way we play. And, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I'm having a hard time sort of visualizing how that team goes. And bringing Shaka back in does mean removing one of Pepe, Odegaard, Smithrow, and Saka. Now, I don't think they've all been scintillating, so if you want to take one of those guys out, you can. I don't think it'd be Odegaard. I mean, you could say on form it might be Saka or Smithrow. Could be Pepe, just in the fact that, like, you know, he's he's a little looser on the ball. But then you say where are the goal's going to come from. I think that's part of the, the trick for me, too, is I've got to give up a player I really want on the pitch to get that guy back in. And I think... You know, the, the the interesting thing is the way we close, you know, Paul said, well, what do you do when party tires and has to come off? Well, we saw what Arteta thought he wanted to do against Burnley when that happens, which is bring in Samby and Maitland-Niles and go to a double pivot with those two. And maybe instead it's a Shaka and Maitland-Niles or Shaka and Samby who have played together, by the way. So I, I do still think you have a way to change it if party so needs to come on off. Shaka, is that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, and and then play a more traditional double pivot with one of Maitland Niles or Samby next to him. So you'd have to make two swaps, you know, to to make that change yeah. work. But that, you know, that is a way you could do it. I don't want to make this just about Shaka, but I do think that that decision is a pivot point, right, Tim? Because 
picking him means removing one of the the more forward-thinking players, which means kind of changing system and changing the way you attack Spurs. Um, it also just does seem to feel to me like he hasn't played in a while. And I don't know how much training, I mean, he's been training in training for a bit now, but he did miss quite a lot of that too. So you're not just bringing on Granite Shaka in the flow of his season who's been playing pretty well. You're bringing on a Granite Shaka that hasn't been on the pitch in a while while the team has been sort of evolving away from what he does. So it, it for me, psychologically, it feels like a step back in terms of how, how we want to approach the game. But I confess, look, we gave him the contract. He's he's considered a leader. I think Arteta gave him that contract because he wants him to be one of the pillars of the team, whether we agree with that decision or not. In in terms of the decision to start him or not start him, I mean, do you have a thought in terms of what it means for the other players he might select or the way we might approach the game? Yeah, I mean, it it, it does it changes the tenor of the approach really doesn't it if if um if we start with granite jacker i mean i guess the other thing to take into account is that he's had covid and he's not vaccinated so um covid is likely to hit him slightly harder and we've seen with players um last season kind of pre-vaccination not everyone but like quite a few players who got covid like gabrielle for example found it quite difficult to come back to their level Yeah, he did. After that. So there's, you know, there's there's that to throw in as well. Like we we kind of take for granted that these guys recover. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm I'm sure he has and will recover. But do you know what I mean? Like to recover at elite athlete level um, when you haven't had the vaccination as well. Like, you know, may, maybe yeah. there's something to consider there. Of course, I mean, Aubameyang had malaria and we know that that was a you know, a longer term challenge that he was facing. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then again, you'd say that like Xhaka's game is not exactly based on um, his lung capacity. So um, there's that as well. I, I think um, the, the, the kind of, it, it depends how this goes, right? Because a part of me in my head thinks that we need to move away from Xhaka for many reasons that we've discussed many times, but part of me thinks, look, just having him sitting in an armchair, like near left back, like that's not enough. That's not enough. Like, like I want more from my midfield. And I think one of the problems under Arteta has been emptying that midfield because everyone's somewhere else. Um, you know, so like, and, and actually Maitland-Niles did this in the second half where obviously there was an instruction to push Tavares up even more. And so Maitland-Niles kind of ended up filling in at um, left back, having not really impressed as a number 10 in the first half. And, I feel like I just see this too much with Arsenal that one of the set, like we play with like two central midfielders and one of them isn't even in central midfield. They're like covering for the, for Tierney or covering off somewhere else or yeah. being asked to go over to a flank or something. And and I just think, no, I, I just want my two central midfielders in midfield now. Like obviously you slide over and cover and things like that, like, like Liverpool do with their midfield. But I think there's a distinction between sliding over and covering and just sitting in the space. And so a, a big part of, I think my, my, not problem with Jacker. My problem with playing Jacker is like, look, we need our midfield to come up a level here. And so him sitting in an armchair at left back isn't enough. But then I kind of think about it and think, well, actually when he was playing with party in the second half of last season, I think he was more dynamic. I think he was covering more space than that. And I think that was, that did look to me like a proper double, double pivot. Um, yeah. And so it kind of, it depends, doesn't it? If if we sit Xhaka in his armchair, um, then no, I don't really want to see that. But if we see what I think I saw from Xhaka party in the spring, then 
I'm I'm okay with that, and I don't think that changes our intac- attacking intent that much. Yeah, yeah. It, you know what's hard, Tim? Though is like, there's also just who Shaka is. His personality is so big. He has so much gravity. I feel like when he plays for us, that suddenly like sometimes Party takes a backseat to him. Odegaard, like the the team is the Party Odegaard team now. You know what I mean? The, the, mm. Those are the guys on the ball a lot, m- moving the ball progressively up the pitch, connecting, you know, between the lines, cre- creating just. A lot of the patterns of play that I think we've we've missed. Yeah. And I, by the way, I don't want to get carried away and say that we just painted two masterpieces against Burnley and Norwich because we clearly didn't. But uh, it, it's it's the point that I just wonder: Can Granite Shaka come into a team and be a cog in a wheel that now really turns more by the power of Party and Odegaard, or is that just not in his DNA? Is it, you know is he going to yeah. be the guy getting the ball, playing a hundred passes, dominating? You know the, the pattern of play. I, th- I think what we're saying here just to say this very briefly um, before I let Paul come in, is we're seeing the path away from Xhaka now. We can see it. Like We can see an iteration of this team that doesn't have him in it. Um, on, on the point of whether he can be a cog, I kind of think he has been under Arteta when perhaps, uh, kind of ironically, when Saka was playing that left wing back role and he just like, tucked in um mm. which which i think is kind of more acceptable in like with the three at the back system um and and i i kind of think he did do that but in in a very kind of specialized set of circumstances but what we're saying is we can see the path away from Xhaka. it's just how quickly we we cut the apron string yeah and, and to be clear i know there's going to be people listening saying all right you guys have talked this to death you made the point like i get that but without this conversation it gets very easy very quickly doesn't it because then it's Tomiyasu, White, Gabriel, Tierney, Party, Odegaard, Smith Rowe, Saka, Pepe, Obamiang, and Ramsdale in goal. I mean, that's it, right? That's the team. Now, whether you think that should be the team or that's the team that can get it done, that's up for debate. Whether there are other players that should be considered. Do we need Martinelli's directness? Do we need Lacazette's hold up play or, you know, whatever we want to say? Do we need more of a double pivot? Whether that should be Sambi or Maitland Niles or indeed Shaka? You know, those are those are all open for debate. But I think there is certainly a, a a first choice forming there that we can see. And so this is the pivot point because if that changes, one of those three comes out, who is it? Is it Saka? Does Smithrow play on the left? Odegaard Moore is a 10, Pepe on the right. Does Saka move to the right? Pepe goes to the bench, Smithrow to the left. I, you know, again, I don't know. I mean, hell, it could be Aubameyang on the left and Lacazette playing through the middle. So I think with that one change for me is probably a change that would potentially have, have a domino effect in terms of other changes. But let's move away from that decision point and, and talk about the game just a little bit more broadly, more tactically more broadly. And again, for patrons tomorrow, we'll have a, a preview with Clive on this as well. He's not available today because he's a huge superstar, as we mentioned. Um, but, but Paul, you know, I, I do see this as a battle of us being able to defend their counterattacks and then them being able to handle the one-on-ones in their defensive third, because, you know, watching them against Wolves, for example, just they are so easily roasted by anyone who can dribble the ball, anyone who can, you know, move the ball quickly. If the ball moves quickly, their defense doesn't respond to it. Uh, You saw it against Chelsea as well. So I don't know how much midfield is the talking point in this game in the sense that Spurs will quickly try to get it up to their front three and counter and, and basically rely on the, the quality of those players to create something out of nothing. Do you, I mean, do you agree that that's the pattern of play? That us being able to, to live with their, you know, win the first ball, win the second ball, prevent those those counterattacks, and then just find ways to create 
those one-on-ones on the edges where you can beat their slow-footed defenders. Yeah. Um, obviously, one of the tweaks we made in the market in terms of players we brought in is we brought in Ben White so we could play a more aggressive, higher line. Um, and so this is going to be a kind of a, a real test case of it against, uh, like, uh, let's assume Spurs aren't shit on the day, that Son and Kane are there and f- are finding some kind of form and are they, ready to do some damage. They're going to be shit, right? Like, they, yeah. they are good. It sucks us. to say it, but they're good, yeah. Yeah, they, they'll do something at some stage, right? They don't They don't even have to be good. They just have to be good twice in the game, right? And they will be. And so we're going to see, like, Gabrielle did great in the last North London Derby. Uh, he was superb against Kane, uh, but he had Luis as his partner. And after a while, Kane switched to to uh, pinning against Luis, and Luis did great. Um, so this is going to be a different test. We're going to play with a higher line. So Son and and whoever else they they put on there, whether it's uh, La Celso or Ali bombing forward or something, um, is going to get runs into the channel and. Ben White and, oh, using two names, White and uh, Gabrielle. Uh, that was a whole Twitter conversation the other day. Yeah, we got we got pulled up on the fact that everyone says Ben White. Uh, Tim, Tim's theory is that it's the monosyllabic thing. Just saying white sounds weird. My theory is that white is actually a word, right? So it's like yeah. if someone has a name that's a word, it feels weird not to say the whole name. Like Ben me, you wouldn't just say me. Yeah. That'd be confusing. Yeah. Anyway, maybe I'm wrong. And then... Tim told us that he studied Russian literature and they always use the full name. Uh, that's Timothy Nikolai Andreevich, to yep. be precise. Yep. Um, and so, like, this is going to be a really good test case of us playing a very high line, taking that risk um, against two excellent counterattackers, uh, Kane with, with his headers or his... Um, hold up play to set off runners past him, Son and Co. And it's going to be a hell of a test of our back line if those guys are in form. Um, going the other way, yeah, they don't like speed. They don't like uh, 1v1s and they don't like uh, a quick attack, but we're none of those things. <laughs> we're, we're more the steady buildup. But what we did against them last time and maybe we'll do something similar, is we played Smith Rowe over the side of Kieran Tierney. And those two uh, guys gave uh, the the full back and Hoiberg all they could handle in terms of creating opportunities. So I guess they'll be expecting that tactic as a possibility this time around and will have thought through it. But, you know, maybe this is a game for putting Smith Rowe on that side next to Kieran Tierney or making that switch later on in the game. Um, but I, I think one of the most interesting battles will be our two centre-backs, the high line, and whether Spurs can get much joy against it. And we'll learn a lot more about our centre-back pairing. Yeah, I, I'm i probably getting a little hubristic just because I've watched a lot of Spurs recently and they look so bad, but the Derby mm-hmm. is never quite that straightforward. No. But I don't think it's a, a very good team. I mean, the, the thing about playing against Spurs is they don't have to be very good because they have Harry Kane and Son and they can score a goal from nothing. And, you know, they, they can win a game with 0.1 expected goals. You know, yeah. And we've scored one goal in 
in two games and no goals in the other game. So uh, they just need to get one one goal here to get us in a whole bunch of trouble. So, well, we we know that we're a different team playing with the lead than playing from behind, and we we sure. really cannot afford to be behind. And Tim, one of the things that like when I've watched Spurs, they've really struggled with is any pressing because whether it's Dyer, Romero, um, you know, I th- I think. Who did they play against Chelsea? Did they play Dyer and Romero, Romero against Chelsea? Romero and yep. Dyer, yeah. Yeah, but then I think they've also tried um, Davidson Sanchez as well, right? Yeah. Um, and they had it, Tanganga, but he got suspended. Did he get there. a straight red? Is he still suspended? Or no, was it he the, two yellows. He yeah, so he's eligible. Yeah. I think he's eligible to come back in. But, like, they got Tanganga, Regulon, like, it they just don't play out from the back very well. And I don't think, you know, we can disagree about their midfield all we want. The fact is, I think when you press them, they, they struggle with it. They did against Chelsea. They did just yesterday against Wolves um, with a fairly strong lineup, but we are not a team that presses particularly effectively ourselves. Um, I'm curious if you think we will try to put them under that kind of pressure, Tim, because they do struggle with it. Or if it's just a case of that's not really the team we are right now, so I wouldn't expect it. And they got uh, Emerson Royale, right? Who? Oh, I yeah. Yep, right that's right. Back, yeah. and, and that would be the Tierney smith Row wing, if that's what we went after. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Again, this will probably come back to who we select in midfield. If if we select smith Row and Erdgaard, then we've got two players who are, who are good at cutting off passing lanes and pressing, and you kind of go from there. Like... If you got those two in party, that's much more a midfield that's capable of um, of putting of cranking the pressure up. Whereas if you put Xhaka in there, you're probably not going to do that. So it'll, it'll, that's and you know to bring that selection up again, it's so pivotal. I, I think overall the thing to say about this game is like you talk about what Arsenal are like with a lead and without a lead. I mean, look at Spurs. Mm. Spurs won their first three games one nil. Look at their shot count after they went one nil up in those first three games. Um, they, they went 1-0 up and they sat on it. And then against Palace, they went 1-0 down and that was it. It was game over. They went 1-0 down against Chelsea. That was it, game over. Like there are, And we've seen with um, Wolves under Nuno, they're a reactive team. And But if they get 1-0 up, that's, that's a big problem, not just because we're not great at coming from behind, but that's exactly what they want because they're such a reactive team. And obviously when you've got Kane and Son, that kind of makes you a counter-attacking team anyway. So th- this really has, a, like I know in a lot of North London derbies, actually quite there's been quite a lot of um, you know teams winning from behind and things like that, but this really has a feel of like whoever takes the lead in this game really, really takes control of it and really, you know, really obviously every team wants to go into the lead, <laughs> like no team plans to go 1-0 down, but this game really, really feels like the first goal has so much weight on it, which is yeah. why I think I'm expecting it to be quite cagey because I think both teams know the importance of that first goal. Yeah, and and I think the the question is, right, which team would you say is the confident team? Spurs were a title contender after 10 minutes of the season, even though they were terrible. Uh, and have since crumbled and looked awful. Although they, they did get past Wolves on a shootout, I should point out. But, you know, and we were the crisis team who has, you know, reached this renaissance of two 1-0 victories over relegation-threatened sides. So neither team is exactly, you know, in resplendent form. But I, I just can't help that having watched them, I think that they are absolutely a team that you can 
go after, be aggressive against, and and they don't have a lot of answer for it. And I think because I I, I think of them, look, I think they are bottom of the table in terms of expected goals. So while we know they can hurt you with Kane and Son, I do think you can be a little more aggressive against them just because they don't create a whole hell of a lot. And so, you know, you're not, you're not going to get, or famous last words, but you don't, I wouldn't think that you have to worry about getting hurt really badly on the counter if you go for it. I, you know, I, I think that they can still do something there, but I don't know how dangerous they are. Look, the fact is I am dancing around the point. Which is that I feel really confident going into this game, and I've been dreading saying that. I know people listening are going to be frustrated hearing me say that, but like, I've spent the last five minutes hemming and hawing about how I can say this, but I feel really good about this game, and I know that you know people are screaming at me to stop, stop talking right now, even more than usual. I just can't help it. The other thing that we should point out is Spurs may have one eye on their Thursday game against NS Mura. They play a, a team called NS Mura in the Slovenian league. Um, in, in the UEFA Europa Conference, I believe is what it's called. So, Are they I mean, the one with the train track running along the sidelines. They don't have a train track. Their stadium one. does hold thirty seven hundred people, though, so oh, it's going to be a rocking atmosphere. And I, I don't mean to put them down because that is the level that Tottenham belongs at. And oh, by the way, we finished below that level last season. So I, I do hear all the people screaming about that too. Look, I, I don't have a lot left to say about this. I, I find it really hard to preview the derby because I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I. You know, I always feel like it's tempting fate to go into it too much, and I find myself always looking down on Spurs more than any other team because when they have flaws, I see their flaws so clearly, and I refuse to see their strengths. But they just they just haven't been very good. I don't know, Paul. I mean, do you want to put yourself out there? Do you have a feeling one way or the other going into this? In terms of how it'll turn out? Uh, I mean, uh, look, they're bad. Just, the, just in terms of how you feel about yeah. them as an opponent right now. Uh, they're dangerous, but they're not good. Um, and I, I'm with Tim on this. They're they could, they're pretty fra- fragile if you get the first goal, but then so are we. So I, I think Tim summed it up right. It, it is about getting the first goal, because um, that confirms. Like if you're Arsenal, that confirms that you're actually starting to to play well that you know you're you're on a curve where you go go down a goal uh the what was the wenger saying up the stairs but down the elevator when it comes to confidence confidence yep. like you you build it slowly if you get the first goal you've got something to build on spurs don't have a lot to build on confidence wise but in a north london derby the energy of the away support, all that kind of shit. You get the first goal, they'll be right behind you, and they haven't had that. I think it all comes down to the first goal. I think that I think Spurs have been pretty bad, but but it depends on it, that's largely a function of how they've been set up. If he sets them up differently, like against City, they went with an, a fairly aggressive pressing setup, uh, three guys narrow, and if he sees us as a mini City. Then they may be they may do some some interesting quirk with three guys pressing up front to press us playing out from the back and kind of kind of have a split block of of pressing up there and pressing at the back. So I don't think we I think we're making judgments on what kind of Tottenham will face and it could be radically different from the last one you saw that was bad they haven't been great but they ha- they've had halves they've had the city game they've had the f- the first half against chelsea it's kind of a crapshoot 
Um, but I think they'll do something. They won't just show up. They're either going to do the the Chelsea setup of the first half with the three midfielders, or they'll do something interesting in terms of pressing us as we play out from the back. Yeah, I mean, I the the thing about Nuno, right, is that he does have that ability to set up a team to spoil a game, yep. uh, but not to go out and win it. I mean, look, they are dead last in expected goals. They are 14th in expected goals against. They haven't had more than one expected goal in their last three games against Chelsea, Palace, and Watford. The 3-0 against Palace is spectacular, by the way, because they had 0.1 expected goals to 2.4 conceded. Now, they were down to 10 men, but not for the first hour. Um, you know, Chelsea battered them pretty good. They didn't play well against Watford. I don't know. I think uh, I think we have to feel okay going into this. Tim, I know, look, you are a veteran of these fixtures. There is no feeling good going into a derby. It is a very painful experience, and you're just hoping to get through it. And when it's over, the scoreline favors us. But that didn't used to be the way. You know, it's funny. I think one of the reasons I struggle with this is I was raised in Arsene Wenger era Arsenal when we just never lost the derby. You know, he just beat Spurs all the time and they weren't very good and it was a big point of pride and I realized that over the last many years that's turned around a little bit and league position has turned around but that's still how I think of them as a game we go into and you know lads it's Spurs I you know I can't help it but for you this is just agony right you don't look forward to it you just want it to, to be over and hopefully with a good result yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I never enjoy the like the only way I could conceive enjoying this game is if we were like five nil up at half time, which is obviously probably never halfway to happen. ten nil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is probably never gonna happen. Like even a lot there are games where we've played Chelsea and Man U at home in recent years and we've been three nil up at half time. And even like the second halves of those games I've I've been having kittens and that's Chelsea and Man United like Tottenham's on a on a different level to that in terms of the tension um so I I can't really ever envisage actually I guess the time we we beat them to win the league I enjoyed that um not least because we were 2-0 up at half time we were so good at that point I just thought well this is game over and and actually it kind of turned out not to be in the end um really only because i think would stop playing but that was the only time i remember kind of feeling um comfortable or happy was that the um, one that ended up a draw yeah yeah so and, finished uh, jens lehman did some shenanigans and yeah un- uncharacteristically uh jens lehman <laughs> got involved in something Gave him a goal an extra time yeah <laughs> but yeah but even that was like the last second so and we only needed to draw an etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyway essentially long story short these games are absolutely awful and i hate them and i kind of i wish i could um you know those people who are afraid of flying but you could like they're happy to be like anesthetized for mm-hmm. flights i kind of feel like that about the north london derby like just give me like you know just like bung something in my arm that will send me to sleep for two hours and let me deal with the result afterwards Have you tried beer i mean <laughs> for the record yeah. tim I'm not, I'm not trying to say you should go this route but there are things that they can put into your arm and there are probably places in london you can go where they will do that i don't know <laughs> i don't know if you'll be able to make it to the stadium after that and nor nor am i recommending you do it uh but you know it does exist i think um I think we should leave it there. I'm really struggling to talk about this game right now, and I, I'll look forward to talking to Clive tomorrow, but I, it's hard, right? Fresh in my mind is like watching Spurs look really bad against Wolves yesterday, watching Spurs look really bad against Chelsea, watching Spurs look really bad against Watford and Palace. Like Those, those games are just so fresh in my mind, and I realize that the Derby is totally unrelated to that, and also you, know, you need to look at your own house a little bit and realize that we haven't exactly been all-conquering, but 
there's there's really just one issue to this game, and that is who's he going to pick? Can he stick with the tactics he's been using, and and can they take us up a level? It is it is a reckoning. This is a Derby Day reckoning because I think what happens, Paul. Like just as a final thought, we had two wins that have people starting to feel mm-hmm. cautiously better, but they're not good enough for us to feel definitely better. You know, one nils yeah. against Burnley and Norwich. People want to feel better. Even the people that you think want to be doomy don't want to be doomy. Everybody wants to feel better. And beating Spurs at home in the Derby, I think that would sort of confirm this a little, get the season up and running. Hell, we could even be, technically speaking, above them in the table if that were to happen. And like, the season would feel properly up and running. And if it goes the wrong way, then suddenly that fragile confidence of these two one nils you know, feels more like the mirage and the the first three games feels more like the reality. And so this feels like a bit of a reckoning because I think if you can get through this in a good way, then you're really up and running for the season. It has a very sliding doors moment, this game to me. Yeah, it's uh, it shouldn't be. It's too early in the season. Of, for of this. course, but it feels but that it way, is. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is a really important game for uh, the early part of this season, the project for this season. At least narratively, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like the only time supporters are really on the same page is when you're good and getting better or when you're bad and clearly getting worse and everything else in the middle is kind of chaotic and people unhappy with each other and the manager in the club and arguing about whether they should be slightly more or less happy. And it's been very unpleasant recently. As you said, even the doomy people, they – they flee from pain is what's going on. They, they, like, they just don't like the state that they're in because of the club. And so this is a really important, like three games in a row in the Premier League, a win over Spurs. Uh, you know, that's a really important piece. And with that, like, we can't lose. A draw would be okay. People are massively loss-averse. You just can't lose is the, is the biggest part of this, but we want the win. And and we need a draw or a win to keep to feel like we're keeping moving forward. It's What we've got at the moment is, is pretty fragile, but it's something. Uh, it's like a candle you don't want blown out, so cup your hands around it. We, we need a win. And, and yeah. they haven't been great, but, but they're dangerous, so... Uh, don't fuck up is is the other part of it, but but play loosely and progressive and go at them, but don't fuck up. So uh, <laughs> easy, easy. Yeah. yeah, and you know, look, I mean, we've played two big games already this season, but they didn't feel like big games, did they? City and Chelsea. We didn't no, have our we players. Ready, we were ready to yeah. to catch a hiding. We kind of did. Yeah. This is the first big game where I think there's expectation. Yep. You know what I mean, and that's why it's also I think an important sort of pivot point, right, Tim? Like this is the first moment of the season where we have a big game. And there's an expectation of a performance and a result. Yeah, and I think like we played bad teams, and we played teams way out of our league, and now here we are against a team yeah. we should be able to match. I mean, do, do you agree that it's sort of a sliding doors moment, Tim? Because I could see you lose the derby at home, and suddenly you're right back in the sentiment we were in mm-hmm. before the international break. You win this. I mean, think we were awful when we beat Chelsea on Boxing Day, and that pulled the handbrake on the despair real quick and turned things around. I feel like this this could even be a level up from that if we can get it right. 
Yeah, definitely. I think the manager knows as well that this game, more than any other, is is really a referendum. I mean, whether it's a referendum on his future from the club, I mean, if if he loses it, I don't think he'll get sacked. But I mean, it it takes him closer to the sack, uh, put it that way. But I mean, in terms of like fan sentiment, it, it it could all turn one way or the other on this game. If if Arsenal lose this, then I think in the fan base at least there is an almost total loss of faith um, in this coach. Whether that extends to the players and the club is another thing. If we win it, I'm not saying everyone thinks Arteta's brilliant, um, but it gives him probably even more than a stay of execution. And like you say, it just tees the season up because it's Spurs, and not just because it's Spurs. We we know that we're going to be roughly in their neck of the woods in terms of the final league position. We probably know that we're going to be in a bit of a bun fight with them, you know, for <laughs> a UEFA, uh, sorry, for a Europa League. Um, you know, it it will probably turn out that one of us will be in the Europa League and one will be in the Europa Conference League next year. And so that probably adds to the kind of the sense of finishing above Spurs, becoming important again, because there's, there's something on it. Um, you know, finish, finishing in the Europa League places is not hugely exciting but finishing in the Europa League place ahead of Spurs and consigning them to the Europa Conference again next season that that would be you know that would add a little bit of spice to it I agree with that so you know look with with whether we like it or not with with direct competitors and with all of the emotion and everything else that goes into the derby like huge for Mikel Arteta certainly his biggest game since the FA Cup final yeah, and look, no one moment should determine anything. But life is a series of moments, guys. And like winning this is a moment that will create a, an ability to to suffer some more ups and downs as we go. Losing this wouldn't be you know the final moment, but it would be such a, a negative that I think it would make it harder for us to suffer some of the ups and downs we're going to go through the rest of the season. So it it does feel like a, a pivotal moment in in our you know the either Arteta kind of getting this project back on track and really regaining faith or the opposite. Now it could be a draw in which case I think everybody just breathes a sigh of relief and we go again. So we'll have to see. I am, I'm excited for it though. I'm excited for a big game that we go into not feeling like the points are written off ahead of time, which was a really ugly feeling from earlier in the season. So that's a step in the right direction. I got to get some more cold medicine. I am really struggling. So uh, I'm going to tie this one off now, given that I have done, at best, let's say a C minus job on this one. Hopefully, better from the lads on Sunday. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo! Tim's on Twitter. Stroberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Ellie Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Thanks for putting up with me today. I'm having a bit of a rough one. Um, we'll have Clive on tomorrow, as I mentioned, and then an instant reaction on Sunday that will hopefully be a drunken, ebullient mess. Uh, but whatever it is, we'll be there to share it together. And we love you for that through the ups and the downs, and hopefully uh, a lot of big ups ahead. So hang in there. Just a couple more days, and then it'll all, all be over until the next time. We love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Shit, no. Shit, no.